Church, we're now going to read the passage from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 to 17. I invite all of you to stand on your feet as you read the word of God. Do not grow weary. Consider him who entered from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be very, very proved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject of fathers of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but it disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, till he started with tears. Amen. Church, that is the word of God. Let's pray before we get into the word. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your kindness, for your goodness. And we're grateful, Lord, that we can meet and listen to your word, even though we're separated, Lord. But yet we know and we believe that you are not limited by time and space. As we dig into your word together, we believe that your word has the power to radically transform us. So do that, Holy Spirit. Speak to us and transform our life. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated if you haven't. Now, one of my favorite com comedies of all time is the movie Click. It is Adam Sandler at his best. Now, if you have not watched it, I do want to encourage you, do whatever it takes to watch it. Just don't download it illegally. That's only my only request. Now, what makes a good comedy? A good comedy not only makes you laugh, but a good comedy actually makes you cry. Okay? And every time I watch Click, I watch it a couple of times, I always cry. Okay, so do watch it. I do want to encourage you to find time and watch Click. However, not while you are watching this sermon, okay? Or otherwise, you might be struck by lightning. Let me try to give you the synopsis of the story without any spoiler. So a man by the name of Michael Newman is a hardworking architect who tried to find the right balance between family and work. And like every hardworking father out there, he found it really hard to find a balance, okay? Like at the same time, he wants to be with his family, he wants to please his family, but at the same time, he also wants to please his boss. And this created a conflict, struggle. Until one day, he met a mysterious man by the name of Morty who gave him a universal remote control. 
care. So what's amazing about this remote control is it allows him to fast forward or rewind his life. So every time he's faced with difficult situation, all he needs to do is click fast forward. Okay? And before he knows it, that situation is already over. I mean, just think about how amazing it is for us to have that remote control. Exam, fast forward. Work, fast forward. Fight with a spouse or parents, fast forward. Broken heart, fast forward. Lockdown, fast forward. School, fast forward. Holiday, forever rewind. Correct? I mean, that's how we like life to be. We want to enjoy all the good parts, but we do not want to experience the difficult parts. Timothy Keller made a very interesting observation of the culture that we live in today. This is what he said. There has never been a culture who are less equipped to deal with the brutality pain of life than ours. And I think he's spot on. Okay, our culture is becoming less and less equipped to deal with hardship. Because today, you and I have this motto of life, unspoken motto, that we want everything to be as easy as possible. I mean, that's why we have apps for everything, right? I mean, we have apps to order coffee at a coffee shop so that we don't have to wait. I mean, we have apps to tell a random person with a random car to pick us at a random place to take us to a random destination. And there's an app also to find the nearest bathroom. And there's even an app for single to find another single to mingle with. Swipe right if you like what you see. Swipe left if you do not like what you see. Confession time. I installed the app many years ago. True story. But let me be clear. It was not because I was desperate. No, it's just I was curious why so many people rave about this app. So after I downloaded, I check it out, I deleted it the next day. Okay, I promise. Don't judge me. The point is we live in a culture that is not equipped to deal with the hardship of life. And I mean, we love the happy part of Christian life. I mean, we love to talk about the fact that God loves us, God bless us, God is for us, God is gracious, loving, slow to anger. We love that. We love to talk about restoration, to which I say amen to all of the, all of the above. But here's another side of Christian life that we hardly talk about, one that we don't often enjoy and delight in. It is the difficult part. I mean, it is the part that if possible, we just want to click fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, and get it over with. But if we've been walking with Jesus for a while, then we know. It is during those hardships, it is during this moment that if we wish we could click fast forward, it is during those times that we actually grow the most in our walk with Jesus. It is during those seasons that we actually feel the tender sweetness of Christ's love. If anyone ever tell you that following Jesus is easy, that person has never followed Jesus. Because Jesus did not come to make our life better. Get that right. Jesus did not come to make my life better. But Jesus come to show me that he is better than life. Okay, that is the gospel. And hardship in life is oftentimes the moment where we experience for ourselves, he is better than life. 
So remember the context of the book of Hebrew, okay? The recipient, a Jewish Christian, who struggled to follow Jesus. I mean, they're rejected everywhere, by the government, by the communities, and to the point that they're like, what's happening? I thought if I follow Jesus, this and this will happen. But when they followed Jesus, they found that following Jesus was extremely difficult. Okay? And because of that, they, became, they started to become weary. They started to lose heart. And without a doubt, the question that came to their mind was, if God is good, <laughs> why did he allow me to go through this hardship? And in tonight's passage, the order of Hebrew will tell us the answer. And if I can sum up my sermon in one sentence, it's this. The best response toward hardship is not to run from God, but to run to God because he is a loving, sovereign father. Let me repeat one more time. The best response toward hardship is not to run from God, but to run to God, because he is a loving, sovereign father. There are three parts to my sermon. The proof, the purpose, the plan. Let's look at the first one, the proof. Verse 3 to 8. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not son. So in verse 3, the author of the book Hebrew actually reminds Jewish Christians to consider Jesus. Now, why is it important? Because Jesus himself was no stranger to hardship. Jesus went through what they went through and more. Because as much as they struggled at that time, they did not struggle as much as Jesus. At the time the letter was written, none of them had yet to die because of their faith. Persecuted? Yes. Mock? Yes. But killed for their faith? No. But here the order saying, but Jesus actually shed your, his blood for you guys. Jesus was persecuted and killed for their sake. And the order now tells them, come on, consider what Jesus went through for you so you will not grow weary nor faint-hearted. Not carefully. The struggle against sin in this context is not talking about the, in, the inner struggle against sin. No, he's not talking about that. So the struggle against sin here is not talking about, you know, like sin of lust, greed, pride, envy. It's not like that. In this context, the struggle against sin actually referred to sin outside of them. Okay, it's referring to sin that is done to them by other people, by people around them. So what happened, maybe, maybe people stabbed them in the back. Maybe their spouse cheated on them. Maybe their spouse walked away because of their faith in Jesus. Or maybe their business partner lied to them and take advantage of them. Okay. So it is a sin that is outside of their control. But pay attention. 
the author tells them, the sin committed against them might be outside of their control, but it does not mean that it is out of control. Because there is one person who oversees all the hardship they went through. It is none other than their heavenly Father, the sovereign God of the universe. Now, this is shocking because it means that every hardship, every struggle, every difficulty we experience in life all come from the hand of God. The mean by which hardship come might be our enemy, but it is purpose by God. See, as we're about to see, God is actually the one who plant and purpose hardship that his people experience. God is the one in charge. See, in this context, God is not a passive observer. So when hardship come, God is not scratching his head in heaven and saying, I wonder what I shall do. I don't know, man. I mean, what happened there? How come the enemy attacked Yossi? I didn't see that coming. No. See, get this right. The God of the Bible is in absolute control over every little detail of what the enemy does. God does not show up on the scene trying to repair what the enemy has broken. No. God is not in the repair business. He is in a discipline business. And his discipline is measured and planned. In other words, if we are in hardship right now, that is part of God's discipline for us. God disciplines us as his children. Look at verse 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly this discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplined the one he loved and chastises every son whom he received. In here, the order tells us there are two wrong responses to God's discipline. The first wrong response is actually to make light of God's discipline. It is to be indifferent. It is to say that because we cannot see the purpose behind our, our hardship, it means that there is no purpose. So we walk around with this attitude, you know, like because we can't see anything good in our struggle, it must be meaningless, okay? So we walk with our heads down and we are very pessimistic. It's like when a father disciplines his daughter for not doing their homework. And he tells her, baby girl, because you did not do your homework, you can't go to Jennifer's birthday party. And the daughter replied, fine. I don't want to go to Jennifer's birthday party anyway. And she walks away. That's the first wrong response. But the second wrong response is actually to become weary. It means to lose heart. It is to believe that God actually do not have our best interest at heart. So when, our, when hardship come, what we do, we point finger and, at God and say, you know what, God, you do not know what you're doing. You're too dumb to run my life. So going back to the father-daughter analogy, instead of walking away, the daughter replied to her dad and said, Dad, I hate you. You're ruining my life for not letting me go to Jennifer's party. You don't love me. Okay, that's what happened. So in this context, she makes her dad the bad guy. How many parents know what I'm talking about? And that is exactly what we often do with God. 
when God disciplines us, it's easy for us to become indifferent toward God, or we make God the enemy. But this is not how we're supposed to respond to God's discipline. Because the author tells us, listen, that God disciplines us not because he does not care about us, not because he does not have our best interest at heart, but rather because he loves us as his children. So when God disciplines us, he loves us. So in other words, God's discipline proves that he loves us. So the right response to discipline should be, well, Dad, I realized that I did you wrong. I did not do my homework and I deserve to be disciplined. Thank you for disciplining me because you love me as your daughter and you did it for my good. Okay, that is the right response. But parents, if your children ever say that to you, you will have a heart attack. Am I right? It takes a miracle for them to say that. But the author is extremely clear. The fact that God disciplined us proof that we are his children. Now think about it. What is the worst thing that a parent can do to their children? It is to never discipline them. I'm sure, I'm sure you have met those parents before who refuse to discipline their children. Let me tell you, that is not loving. That is cruel. Because parents who do not discipline their children set their children up to spend the rest of their life either in jail or mental hospital. That's what happened in Korean drama, right? I think in the last decade or so, I mean, it's kind of weird, but in the last decade or so, there's this trend where parents try to be their kids, their children's best friend. Okay? They want their children to like them and not simply love them. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be friends with your children. But parent, that is not your primary role. Parents, your primary role is actually to train your children in the fear of God, which means that sometimes you have to be their enemy for their good. Sometimes you have to inflict pain on them to discipline them. Because as a parent, your goal, your desire is for your children to grow in maturity and not remain childish. Therefore, we can see this. Even in parental, in earthly parental, love and discipline, they go together. You can't separate them. In the same way, we cannot separate God's love and God's discipline. The two goes hand in hand. If we are God's children, he will discipline us. In fact, do you know what is the worst thing God can do to us? It is to leave us alone. So a lot of time when we think about God's wrath, we think about, you know, God is pouring out his anger towards sinner. He punished sinner for the sin. And that is certainly true. But there's another side of God's wrath that is far more dangerous. In Romans chapter 1, okay, Paul tells us that the wrath of God actually involves God letting people do whatever they want to do. So what happened, the wrath of God is expressed when God simply said to humankind, do whatever you want to do. I will not stop you. That is the wrath of God. So for us, 
So if we live in sin, my friend, and God does nothing, we should be extremely afraid. Oh yes, we should be worried because that means, that means if we, God leaves us on our sin and He does nothing, that means we are not His children. Parents, you understand this, right? So when your children have friends over to your house and they collaborate together to destroy your house, you discipline your children. But you don't discipline their friend. Well, why? Well, because they're not your children. I mean, you don't spank other people's children, right? You go to jail for that. Now, do you see what happened? So we might be in church, but if God does not discipline us, then we are not his children. We are someone else's children. But if God disciplines us, it shows us one thing. We are his children, and he loves us. So God's discipline is proof that we are God's children. And we, if we understand this, that means every time God disciplines us, we should not be weary or faint-hearted but rather rejoice because God is treating us as his children. But then let's look at the purpose. What is the purpose of God's discipline then? Verse 9, verse 11. Besides this, we have had early fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplined us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, before we go on, I think it's very important that we differentiate between discipline and punishment. Punishment has a negative connotation. Punishment is something that's done as retribution or payback. So if I punch you in the face just because I feel like it and then I get fired from the church, that's not discipline. That's punishment. Discipline is different. Discipline has positive connotation. It is not retribution or payback. It is what people do for the good of the other party. It's what loving parents do to their children. And God's discipline, yes, it involves correction, but it's not punishment. No, it's not. Why? Because the punishment of our sins already paid at Jesus, by Jesus at the cross. So what's left for us is actually God training us to grow in holiness. See, in first nine, now, the order gives this comparison between earthly father and heavenly father. When our earthly father disciplines us, we are grateful to them because of that. But they only discipline us for this temporary life. I mean, the effect of their discipline maybe only lasts for what? 70, 80 years till you die. But our Heavenly Father actually disciplines us for eternal life. So the effect of His discipline actually lasts forever and ever and ever. And if we respect our earthly Father because of their discipline, in this temporary life, should we not subject ourselves to our Heavenly Father who disciplined us for eternal life? And not only that, but God's discipline is actually tailor-made for us. 
It means that not a single discipline is wasted or useless. Get this. Everything God allows to happen in our life is tailor-made specifically for us. And this is something that no earthly father can do. Now, let me give you an example from my own life. I grew up in a very strict family, okay? Both my dad and my mom, they love God, and they understand the need to discipline their children to raise them well, okay? And as you can see, I think they did a very good job. Well, I thank God for my parents. However, I did not always appreciate their discipline. When I was young, whenever I disobeyed them, my parents, my dad especially, would discipline me. And in those days, we did not, I did not have time out, okay? I was never told to stand at the corner of the room to reflect on what I did. Because for an introvert like me, that is not a punishment. That is heaven, right? So the way my dad disciplined me, it was always, you did what? Kapow, right? That's how we roll in our family. And before my dad belted me, he will often say, listen, yours, this is going to hurt me more than it hurt you. To which I thought, well, if that's true, why bother? I mean, just let me off the hook, right? So we can save ourselves some pain. But of course, I did not say it loud. Otherwise, it won't be kapow, but kapow, kapow. But here's what happened. My dad disciplined me for my good. He did it out of love and concern for my well-being. But it did not matter how well intended he was. His discipline were imperfect. He disciplined me as it seemed best to him. But the problem is he's not all-knowing. He's limited in knowledge. He actually have no idea how his discipline will turn out. His discipline were imperfect because he is imperfect. But not so with our Heavenly Father because our Heavenly Father never disciplined us unless it is for our good. He knew exactly what he's getting when he chose us before the foundation of the world. God knew exactly how we are going to react. He knew exactly how we are going to behave. And he was not surprised by anything we do. So every discipline that he gave to us never come out of frustration. When God disciplines us, he does so perfectly. He only allow whatever good for us. Not one spank too many, not one spank less. Not one millimeter too much, not one millimeter less. God's discipline is exactly what we need for our good. It is tailor-made for us. No discipline is done without purpose. Just because you and I cannot see the purpose right now doesn't mean there is no purpose. So what is the purpose, yours? The purpose is that we may share in His holiness. In other words, God disciplined us for the very reason that we may become like God. He wants us to grow in Christ-likeness. Look at verse 11, crucial verse. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, God's discipline is always for our good. But when we are going through it, 
it doesn't feel like it is for our good. All discipline is painful when we're in it. But over time, we will be able to see the good fruit of God's discipline. And the word that the author used is very interesting. He used the word train, okay, which comes from the Greek word from which we have the word gym, gymnasio. So he's saying like God's discipline actually feels like going to the gym to work out. Okay. Now, a few years ago, uh, my friend took me to a Christian workout. Okay, it is very popular. Some of you might heard of this Christian workout. It is called CrossFit. Do you get that? CrossFit. Okay, some of you are like, what? Okay, never mind. At the time, I only knew a little about CrossFit. Okay, but my friend who took me there, he was a lot chubbier than me. Okay, by chubby, I mean fat. Okay, so I thought, well, it could not be that hard, right? I mean, if he can do it, well, I'm sure I can. I'm a lot slimmer and fitter than him. So when we get to the class, the instructor wrote on the board what we were going to do in the next 40 minutes. Okay, it looked like this. Okay, if, I, if my memory serves me right. 10 minutes of warm-up, and then followed by a total of 160 squats, 120 sit-ups, 100 lunges, 100 burpees, 100 push-ups, 100 mountain climbers, and 60 jump squats in four different sets. And I was like, is this a workout place or a dead camp? Okay. I died after two sets. And the trainer yelled at me, right? Don't stop. I know you have what it takes in you. You are not that weak. You are stronger than you think. And I replied in my head, dude, I am that weak. Just leave me alone. I literally collapsed on the ground trying not to puke. But what surprised me the most was that my friend, who was a lot fatter than me, was able to finish all four sets. Apparently, he was a lot fitter than me. So at the end of the workout, I asked him, dude, how did you do it? I died after two sets. Okay, and this is what he said. When I first started CrossFit, I was only able to finish one set. Okay, I feel good because I finished two sets. But I kept coming. Okay, I kept coming. And every session, I was pushed to what I thought was my limit and I kept going. And that's how I get stronger. Now, do you see what happened here? This is the irony. We do not get stronger by staying in our comfort zone. We do not get stronger at a point which we feel strong. Oh no, that's not how it works. Do you know how we get stronger? We get stronger at our weakest moment. See, at the point where every muscle inside of us screams out, telling us to stop but we fight for just one more burpee, one more push-up, one more sit-up, just a little bit more. It is at that very point we become stronger. The weaker we feel, the stronger we are becoming. Well, it does not feel like we're getting stronger, but we are. And that's what happened during training. We might not think we are getting stronger at our weakest moment, but we are. And don't miss this. Through discipline, God is making us who we were meant to be through the means we will not choose on our own. See, you get this. 
you know this. Our faith will not grow if it's not tested. Our commitment will not grow if it's not threatened. Our patience will not grow if it's not stretched. Our courage will not grow if it's not challenged. So yes, discipline is painful, but it will yield the fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So after God's discipline, what happens is we find ourselves stronger, fitter, kinder, more patient, more committed, more courageous. We find ourselves growing in Christ's likeness. You know that. Do you see what happened? But the problem is it doesn't feel like it when you're in it. Because you and I are limited beings. Okay? All we can see is right now. But God is not limited. He's eternal. God not only sees the here and now, but God also sees tomorrow. He not only cares about how we feel right now, but He cares about tomorrow. He cares about who we are becoming. And God's disciplined us at the exactly right amount, right duration, to produce the fruit of righteousness in us. So it does not matter what sort of hardship we're in right now. We do not get there by accident. Oh no, my friend. God is not surprised at what we face in life right now. He orchestrates us to be where we are right now because He is more committed to our growth than we are. Whatever struggle, whatever hardship, whatever discipline, we can rest assured that they are motivated by God's love for us as His children. Do you see how comforting this is? And let's look at the third one, the plan. Verse 12 to verse 14. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knee and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now remember how we talk about Christian life as a race last time? And the race is actually not a sprint, but a marathon. It's a long race. It's difficult. It's exhausting. And in these verses, the order actually gives us the plan. How can we finish a race well? And the plan actually involves two different kinds of responsibility. Okay, let's talk about the first one first. Personal responsibility. Now, note the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. It means that whatever the author will tell us, it is actually based on the fact that we know that God is a loving Heavenly Father who disciplines us for our good. Now he said, because you know that God is your Heavenly Father, your loving Father, then the first thing that we got to do is you should not, we should not be discouraged. Because our race is long. Okay, it's difficult and we will get tired. But the encouragement for you and me is that God knows exactly what he's doing. He's not putting us in the wrong race, my friend. No, our race is tailor-made for us. Our challenges, our disciplines, our training are designed specifically for us. It is part of God's training, discipline to make us like Jesus. So whenever you feel tired, do not take a detour. Do not take an easy way out. 
we should lift our drooping hand and strengthen our weak knee and keep running because we know that this is God's good design for us. Oh, and yes, there will be injury along the way. But this is very counterintuitive. So when you and I think about injury, what comes to our mind, okay, that means I got to hit the pause button, I got to stop and rest. But in Christian race, you do not hit the pause button, my friend. You do not get better by stopping your race. You get better from injury by continuing running on the path that God has set for you. So do not be discouraged and keep running. Second, second personal responsibility is for us to pursue peace with everyone. See, as a Christian, we are called to be agents of reconciliation, not retaliation. And once again, pursuing peace does not come naturally, especially if we are the one who's offended. Think about the Jewish Christian. Okay? They were persecuted not because of something bad that they do, but because they did something right. And now the order say, I want you to pursue peace with everyone. You got to understand it is our responsibility to pursue peace with people around us. But Romans 12, 18 also tell us if we try to pursue peace with everyone, but they refuse to be at peace with us, then we are no longer obligated to pursue it. And the third responsibility is to pursue holiness by which no one see the Lord, will see the Lord. Simply means this. If you believe in the gospel, you got to live a life worthy of the gospel. Those who believe in the gospel will live by the gospel. Or another way to put it is, faith without works is dead. So if we claim to love Jesus, but we're not growing in Christ-likeness, we're not growing in holiness, we are a liar. Okay? But there's another type of responsibility that I want to talk about. Okay? Verse 15 to verse 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." The second type of responsibility is corporate responsibility. See, the phrase see to it indicates that this responsibility belongs to every Christian in the church and not only pastors. As we often say it, yes, Christianity is a personal faith, but it is a community project. Okay, we desperately, desperately need one another to finish well. So what are our corporate responsibility? Three things. First, we are to see to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God. In other words, listen, you and I, we are responsible not only for our own faith, but we are responsible to help and watch over other people in their walk with God. So when we see people around us start to drift away from Christian faith, what we do is we do not remain passive, but rather we become active and we come and encourage them to not walk away from Christian faith, to continue to run their race. We remind them of the gospel and the grace of God that is available for them. Second one, we are to see that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble. 
because Christian race is long and difficult. There will be many people who get injured and it can easily lead to bitterness. Maybe they expect that if they follow Jesus, then their life will be happy and they will be awesome. But then life does not work out according to the expectation. When they follow Jesus, they find out that following Jesus is hard, difficult. Maybe in the season of lockdown, they found out that maybe their loved one passed away. Maybe their spouse did not change for the better. Or maybe their business went bankrupt and they questioned God and they become confused and they start to question everything. They're not happy. And they complain about God, they complain about the church, they complain about pastors, community, ministry. And if not careful, what happened, they can begin to cause trouble to people around them. So rather than run to God in their, with their question, they run from God. They can become very bitter. And they might promote unbiblical teaching and practice in the church. And they distract other people from running their race. So what do we do with these kind of people? Whose responsibility it is to help them? The author does not say, leave it to your pastor. Leave it to Yossi, he's paid for it, let him take care of it. He does not say that. He says this, it is our responsibility to make sure that as a church that we have no bitter people around us. See to it. And the third one, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now let me explain. This is not only a rebuke against sexual sin, but it's a rebuke against driven by sinful appetite. And the author used the life of Esau as an example. Now, if you do not know who Esau was, Esau was the twin brother, twin older brother of Jacob. But they're very different. Esau loved to hunt. Jacob loved to cook. So Esau was daddy boy, while Jacob was more like a mommy boy. So one day, um, Esau went hunting, okay, and he was tired and weary. And when he got back, he saw Jacob was cooking bread stew. And he said to Jacob, well, Jake, listen, I'm tired. Why don't you give me some of that stew? I'm starving, bro. And Jacob replied, well, sure, I can do that. But it's going to cost you. Why don't we trade? Why don't we make a trade? Why don't I trade you some of this red stew for your birthright? This is very illogical trait. Because in that culture, birthright is not simply a bragging right of who was older. Oh no. Because if you are the firstborn of the family, what happens is you received the blessing of the firstborn and you were the one who carried the family's name and reputation. And in the context of Genesis, that means Esau will be the one who carry and receive God's blessing to Abraham. So this is massive, okay? The blessing was priceless. But did you know what Esau say? This is what Esau say. Well, sure, I'll trade my birthright with this rat stew. What use is my birthright if I'm going to die of starvation? And then he swore to give his birthright to Jacob. Now, can we agree that this is probably one of the dumbest transactions in the history of the world? I mean, it's like trading your brand new Ferrari for an old Hyundai i20. 
I got to change the car every now and then, right? Otherwise, people get offended. But no one will make that trade. But Esau did. See, Esau was driven by his worldly appetite to the point that he does not care about the future. He only cared about what felt good at the time. He chose short-term satisfaction over pleasure forevermore. And before we bet Marisal of how dumb he was, we got to remember that is exactly what we do a lot of time. See, every time we open that porn website, every time we lie, every time we sleep with someone who's not our spouse, every time we gossip, every time we take that drug, every time we rebel against our parents, every time we abuse our spouse, we choose rats to over birthright which is what feels good right now over the promise of God. We indulge in short-term satisfaction over pleasure forevermore. And listen to what you ought to say in verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Friends, this is a strong warning because Ezo eventually regretted what he did. But by that time, it was already too late. I mean, Ezo was in tears, he was crying, but there was nothing he could do about it. And the lesson is not, the lesson is not that God will not forgive us when we repent. That is not the lesson because God will always forgive genuine repentance. See, but what Ezo saw was not repentance. Esau was in tears because he was sorry he lost his birthright. He was sorry for the consequences of sin, but he does not hate his sin. He was in tears because the consequences was too much. And his heart had become so hard to the point that he could not repent. And the order of Hebrew is telling us, listen, Make sure no one around you become like Esau. We have to have the courage to warn our brothers and sisters before it is too late. And again, this is not just the responsibility of me as your pastor or the leaders. Oh no, listen. It is our corporate responsibility to make sure that none of us walks away from the Christian faith. That's the plan. That's how we finish well. We desperately need one another. Yes, there's personal responsibility, but also there's corporate responsibility. We need one another. And let me close with this. Hope you can see by now that Christian race is extremely hard, long, and difficult. It is filled with hardship and challenges. And it is very easy for us to become weary and tired and faint-hearted. So then the question is, well, then how can we finish our race? How can we find the strength to continue to run and finish well? I think the order gave us the answer earlier in verse 3. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who injured from sin and such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The strength for us to continue to run is to consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Ponder on Jesus. Because Jesus did not have to injure such hostility from sinners. 
Jesus did not have to suffer at the cross, but he did. Jesus endured such hostility for our sake, for my sake, for your sake. So he took everything that we deserve at the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus was punished for our sin because our sin deserved punishment. See, Jesus obeyed God the Father perfectly. He was the perfect son who need no punishment. But he was punished at the cross for my disobedience, for your disobedience, so that today when we put our faith in Jesus, we can have the confidence that God is not punishing us for our sins. When we put our faith in Jesus, we can be rest assured that whatever hardship we experience in life is not God's punishment. It is God loving us as His children. He is disciplining us. He is training us to be more and more like Jesus. And that is the encouragement. See, Jesus sought us in His hardship so that we can seek Him in our hardship. Jesus paid all the punishment of our sin so that you and I know that we will never, ever run our race on our own. So here's the encouragement, and I'm done. Whatever hardship you face in your race, do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Keep on running. Keep on running. And in your hardship, do not run from God, but run to God, because He is a loving, sovereign Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can call you our Father. We are so grateful that even in the midst of our hardship, we can have the confidence that this is not your punishment, but this is your loving discipline for us so that we may grow, so that we become more and more like you. So Father God, I don't know what kind of hardship that we're in right now, But I pray that because of the gospel, rather than run from you, we run to you. Rather than despise you, we trust you. And every time we doubt, help us to consider Jesus. Help us to look to Jesus and what Jesus has done and find strength to continue running. And Lord, we believe, we believe that one day, one day, we might not be able to see it right now, but one day we will be able to see the good purpose behind all the hardship that you allow us to experience right now. So do that, Holy Spirit. Strengthen us. Help us to continue to fear on the gospel and run hard after you. And we ask this in your beloved name, Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.